0: This is Poured Over, a show about stories presented by the booksellers of Barnes & Noble. I'm Miwa Messer. I'm the producer and host of Poured Over, and we're doing something a little different with the show today. Cormac McCarthy notoriously does not do interviews. There was the 92 interview in the New York Times, 2005 with Vanity Fair, and of course Oprah in 2007 when The Road was chosen for her book club. That's pretty much it. There might be some few tiny pieces from early on when he was still sort of chatty, but the man has always said, if you want to know about the work, it's on the page. So it's my great good fortune, though, to have Chip Kidd and Jenny Jackson with us. They are part of the team that brings Cormac to all of us. And they have a lot to say. So, you know, consider this the audio equivalent of Frank Sinatra has a cold. (laughs) But Jenny and Chip, thank you so much for joining us. Would you let listeners know what your exact roles are at PRH?
1: My name is Chip Kidd. I uh, have this long title. Um, I'm Associate Art Director for Book Covers for Knopf, and Editor-at-Large for Graphic Novels for Pantheon Books.
2: And my name is Jenny Jackson, and I'm an Editor at Knopf. And um, I have been working with Cormac on these books for the past eight years. So Mm -hmm. sort of new to the Cormac team, if eight years is new to the team. (laughs)
0: Uh, years doesn't feel new, but Chip, As before we started taping, you said you've been with Cormac since 1992 and All the Pretty Horses, which I have to confess, that's how I came to Cormac with that book in that hardcover jacket that you designed. But it also, that got me to Suttree and Blood Meridian about five minutes later, because I think Vintage did a big reissue at the same yeah. time, if I remember correctly. Mm-hmm. Did you have a hand in those Vintage reissues as well?
1: Um, No. Vintage adapted the hardcover jacket for the paperback of all the pretty horses.
0: And actually I have that right here. <laughs> so here's the what I consider the new paperback, because my original paperback copy didn't have that turquoise band in the middle. And Sutri and Blood Meridian had very different packages
1: yes. from
0: what they are now. And I'm totally doing show and tell because, you know, we have video and I love these jackets.
1: So Okay, so those I did do.
0: Yeah. That's what I
1: thought. Okay. Okay.
0: So the passenger came out at the end of this fall. And by the time this episode airs, Stella Morris will have been out. So Jenny, can we talk about when you figured out that this book that Cormac was sending you needed to actually be two books and how you were going to publish it? It's a really interesting way to publish two volumes in not necessarily a series.
2: Right. I mean, it's, it's funny in some ways, I think we've had to make up a new language for talking about what these books are, because, you mm-hmm. know, we all know the word trilogy in, right. you know, some people do actually call a two book theory, a duology, but
3: mm-hmm.
2: that's, you know, that's not really a, the, the going term, but the way we've really been thinking about these two books as, uh, are is as two sides of a narrative coin. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you're gonna, you're gonna be surprised, but Actually, um, when we first received these books, they were not together. We received Stella Maris first, and then maybe a year later received most of The Passenger. Because while Cormac began working on The Passenger, he then finished Stella. He wrote all of Stella and then came back and finished The Passenger. So I think that speaks to the way he thinks about these novels as Mm -hmm. very, very connected, as readers will find the two books are very different and the narrative tone is very different. And so they are two books while they are also one book.
0: And published what, eight weeks apart? Am I getting that? I think I have those dates, right? Yeah.
2: And we liked the idea of people being able to take a breath. I think it's, you know, while some of us in publishing are used to reading long books really fast crash overnight the general reader is going to take two weeks three weeks four weeks to to read a really long dense book like The Passenger and I think I would my dream would be for people to read these two books consecutively
3: right. but I think
2: it's wonderful if they can take a breath in between and then dive in to Stella Maris you can do it in whatever order you want but to me that's the like Best reading experience.
0: Chip, when are you brought into the process? I mean, Jenny's talked in other interviews about sort of handing manuscripts off in the hallway as you needed to. Nothing was done electronically for obvious reasons because Cormac fans are very intense. But when are you brought in?
1: Well, I'm brought in when there's a manuscript to read. So I was brought into this August of 21. Okay. right? Right, Jenny? Yes. Okay. And for me, it was just a very pleasant surprise because I didn't know really what was in the works. So as as a cover designer, you're brought in sort of midway through the publishing. You're brought Mm -hmm. in about a year before it's going to be published. And so they sent me the manuscript. But I remember there was sort of specific direction in terms of, okay, This isn't one book, it's two, but they have to look like they belong together. They have to be distinct, but they have to look like they belong together. And initially, uh, the whole thing was going to be issued as a box set of two. So that's how I originally conceived the look of it. And indeed, it will be issued as a box set of two. Um, at the same time that Stella Maris comes out. Um, But the initial design was a box set of two. And so that's what I started to think about as I was reading it. And the decision was made, let's do, you know, the way we're doing it now, which is the, the, the two volumes coming out staggered and then the box set coming out Uh, with the second volume. So it it was an interestingly complicated challenge, but I I love that.
0: So you sit down with the manuscript, you figure out what sort of needs to serve. I mean, the basic story, we're talking about a set of siblings, Mm -hmm. Bobby and Alicia Western. Their dad is attached to the Alamo project and they're sort of wrestling with that legacy along with a couple of different pieces that I'm going to let readers sort of come to because there's a lot that I mean, Bobby is a deep sea diver. Alicia is one of the most brilliant mathematicians ever. Mm -hmm. And each of those things has their own challenges and their own stories. But how do you balance I mean, you can see behind Jenny, she's got both books and they really work as a pair. So where did the idea start for you as the designer?
1: You take notes as you're reading. Um, And so as you've mentioned, mathematics plays a huge role in this book. And so I started thinking about that, um, math symbols. I ultimately concluded that if it looks like it's a book about math, nobody's going to want to read it. But, you know, those are the kinds of Stages that you go through as as you're reading, as you said, I don't want to give away any spoilers, but you said the you know the Alamo project. So when you're looking at the cover of the passenger, you think you're seeing a sunset, right? And then when you'll get the second book, you'll find out that that's not what you're looking at at all, right? And then then the whole theme of submersion, Mm -hmm. and he's a deep sea diver, even though he doesn't. <laughs> <laughs> not a sunset. So I and I the brother and the sister, mm-hmm. uh submersion um and then the opposite of that, uh which is an explosion, these themes sort of spoke to me visually about how mm-hmm. they how they could work together. So that's content and then you think about form, right? Um no matter what your concept is, it has to look good it has to look interesting to a reader who knows nothing about this book
3: mm-hmm.
1: and, and okay Cormac has a built-in audience but at the same time this really has to look compelling to somebody outside of that because mm-hmm. we want to we constantly want to be drawing in new readers so anyway then it just boiled down to a really rich beautiful blue and uh, a, a rich glowing uh, orange red and how they, and how they, how they look together.
2: Yeah. And Jenny, you're Cormac's third editor. Yeah. So I started working on it with Sonny, um, mm-hmm. Sonny Mehta, who was the head of Knopf until mm-hmm. he passed away at the end of um, 2019. But Gary Fiskejohn was uh, the first editor to bring Cormac to Knopf, worked mm-hmm. with him for the majority of his books. Um, and then Dan Frank was the editor on the road. Um, mm-hmm. Worked with Cormac on that. It was interesting walking walking into edit Cormac is a little intimidating. I think um, you'd have to have a pretty colossal ego not to be intimidated by that. But in fact, it was a lovely process,
3: mm-hmm. and
2: he is unfailingly polite. And the vast majority of our communication took place in the margins, and there was a real purity to that the kind of back and forth that we had in the margins of the book. But eight
0: years. I mean, I'm guessing he turns in a pretty clean manuscript.
2: He does. I have to tell you, he, um, it's a very clean manuscript, but there were pieces of it that he was still working on. And so it wasn't entirely chronological. And because of the nature of the book and because of the questions that Cormac is interested in answering it was fascinating to read to read it in this way because you know when you when you first read the opening pages of the passenger your thought is okay there is a sunken plane and there are bodies missing and the book is called the passenger and you know there you can tell that somebody from this plane is missing and so of course for the whole beginning of the book, your question is, who is the mm-hmm. passenger? By the end of the book, that's not the question at all. It's changed. When you're reading most of it, but he hasn't turned in the end of it, you're thinking, well, I think I'm waiting for this kind of thing. And then what he turns in is something totally different and much more interesting. You know, so it was, it was, I think I actually had maybe uh, tickets to the hottest serialization in town by reading it in parts like that.
0: That is the best description of the editing process that I've heard in a really long time. But this is also a real departure for him stylistically. And also, Alicia is the first sort of centered female character he's had since, what, his second book?
2: Right, maybe since Outer Dark.
0: Yeah, okay. You know, a Cormac novel, there's that moment sort of where All the Pretty Horses tips him into... A new kind of voice from the earlier work. I mean, it's a little more Faulknerian uh, in, in the early stuff. And now suddenly we've got this like a little more staccato. That man hates semicolons, which I got to wrestle with that a tiny bit because I do love a semicolon. But I'm not Cormac McCarthy, so. <laughs> but Chip, do you remember what it was like for you when you first started reading Cormac, I mean, all the pretty horses. That first jacket, that hardcover jacket, was just—I mean, got me to pick up a western for the first time, possibly ever. And yes, I know I should read Lonesome Dove, and someday I will, but I have not. So,
1: well, that, totally you know, raised in a barn. That, that was definitely the goal. Um, mm-hmm. I will, I will admit, and I—I I mean, I don't, I don't, I can't even remember how. I'm just like barely thirty years old, mm-hmm. um, but I had never, I had never heard of Cormac McCarthy. I had never read any Cormac McCarthy, um, so it was a real education for me. But the, I mean, I've been actually at this job now for 36 years, and mm-hmm. it's an endless education, and, I, and that's mm-hmm. part of why I just absolutely love it. But reading that in manuscript, I and I was not used to uh, no punctuation marks for when people are speaking, you know, no quotation marks. I felt like I got acclimated to it pretty quickly. With that cover, I did precisely what you're not supposed to do. Um, You know, if it's called All the Pretty Horses, you don't put a pretty horse on it. Um, But for some reason, I I was doing, you know, photo research and this guy came in with his portfolio and I saw that picture and I was still in the middle of working, you know, trying to figure out what this what the cover was going to be. And I just thought, I think I should try that. Because it felt like a detail from a still of a really great uh, western movie from you know the fifties or the forties. The one thing that that we did know is that it was going to be the first of three. So I started like thinking, you know, very conceptually that like the first one should be black and white, and then the second one should be duotone, and then the third one will be full color. I put the sketch together. And you, and then you know the, the old days pre pre computer uh, started you know taking it around to show it to Gary to show it to Sonny, and they they both liked it, but they said, "Have you thought about color?" And because of course it was completely black and white. And uh, I said, "Yes, I I have thought about color." I was amazed that um, that they didn't make me change it. Hmm. Uh, but if you look at the hardcover edition when you open the front flap there's what's called a drop cap you know when you have like a big letter and it's turquoise and like like that was the color that they that they got you know I loved the book and and in those days um Cormac did come into the office a couple times Mm -hmm. so I got to you know meet him and hang out with him in Sonny's office and it was just amazing. And then when the book blew up is when he sort of retreated from the public a bit.
0: Yeah, because it went from zero to 60. I mean, I was just starting my book selling career when All the Pretty Horses came out and I just, it changed the landscape entirely for his career. I mean, before that he'd sold maybe 5,000 copies here, 5,000 copies there. I mean, most of the paperbacks were out of print until Vintage brought them back in conjunction with the hardcover of All the Pretty Horses. I mean, he had legendarily this sort of cult following. And then suddenly it was like, oh, wait a minute. He really is the great American novelist. And suddenly we have a National Book Award in the National Book Critics Circle. And yeah, he would had a MacArthur Genius Grant before that, but he still wasn't quite, he certainly wasn't the Cormac McCarthy of the road. I mean, that right. was just an entirely different stratosphere. So the passenger and Stella Mars are coming into a very different landscape from yes, all the are. pretty horses. Jenny, when you're working with Cormac, though, when do you get involved in the jacket process at all? Do you have notes or do you just wait for Chip to show you something fabulous and then go from there?
2: I mean, Chip, I think the first thing I saw was that was what we ended up with. Mm-hmm. It wasn't like Chip had a lot of false starts on this. Right. I think our jacket process tends to be, you know, Chip has worked with Cormac for so long that he he knew what it should look like. Um oftentimes the editor ends up giving a lot of feedback when things aren't going well. And then <laughs> that's just often like a diminishing return situation, I think, where, you know, then all the cooks come in the kitchen and then, you know, but um this was just actually a really um Easy, wonderful thing where chip had a vision for it, and I believe chip, that you actually showed us in person for the first time, and it was really yes. when we were first coming back into the office, and it was just this incredible reminder of how wonderful it is to be together because chip had mocked up a box mm. set, and so oh, we wow. could really see, oh, this is how each book will look, and this is what the case will you know we we got to am I remembering this correctly chip
1: yes, yes, i I was so. I mean, this sounds so sappy, but it was so emotionally resonant for me because we'd all been working remotely for two years. And then mm-hmm. the office finally opened up uh, in the fall of 21. Of, of and and I was just dying to get back in the office and right. work, with, work with my hands and and, you know, print these things out and trim them and wrap them around books. You know, that's always... Pre-pandemic, that was always the way that that we did it. It just felt so good to to make a thing and to go upstairs because editorials one flight up from yep. from where design is, you know, schedule a meeting and go upstairs and say, "Here, this is what I think we should do." It was really something um, for me. That doesn't sound all that. No, amazing, it's fascinating. It I think.
2: I think it's sort of interesting to think about because one of the very strange things about this whole entire process is how intensely secretive we had to be for so many years about the existence of these books. And I mean, one of the things that I just, I mean, I had fear in my heart. I knew that if I was the one who leaked news about these books, there are very few authors in the world for whom leaking news a book is coming would mm-hmm. actually break the internet but with Cormac McCarthy people care so much and it's this incredible deep relationship yeah. that his fans have with his work and so it was so fascinating that for you know the first 6 years it was this secret thing in the office of skulking down the hallways with manuscripts <laughs> and not emailing about it and never I never have I never had a manuscript on email ever mm-hmm. it was yep. always Physical, so it was already this crazy, private, um, hermetically sealed process. And then you send us all home for two years, right? right? And we finish out working on this book at home, and Chip designs it at home. And then you get this moment where we come back, and Chip has the jacket, and the books are finished, and we can go announce it, and we can share with the public. So it was, it was like the kind of highest highs and lowest lows of sort of secrecy and community.
0: Yeah, and I remember too when I got the email from you guys saying, oh, this is coming and here are the jackets. And I just stared at the email for a minute because the jackets, even, and colors don't always, we know this, colors don't always reproduce the way they're intended on email. And I could not stop staring at them. I just couldn't, I'm just waiting and waiting. And I was like, okay. And then I got the galleys, obviously. And I was like, yeah, yeah, this is just going to work. Like, not a single 10 out of 10, no notes chip. They made absolute sense the minute I held them in my hands.
1: But have you seen the box set yet?
0: Not yet. I'm dying to see it. No. That's ah, uh, Jenny. That's, Jenny's gonna. See.
1: Oh, there you go. That is beautiful. That's the real
0: design, actually. Yep, and that's perfect. That is absolutely, absolutely perfect.
2: Also, the thing that um, you know, if we're gonna truly geek out here, which is yes, please, <laughs> my jam. Um, because of the realities of the printing mm-hmm. landscape right now, because of the fact that we are printing in a pandemic, because there is a crush on printers, we've really cut back on effects. And it's mm-hmm. been an extra challenge for our whole team to make sure that we're delivering the most beautiful jackets. And the fact that this, the way that the gloss and matte is used is just, I mean, it's an extra layer of achievement for our art and our production team that they were able to pull off something that actually is as beautiful as it is.
1: Also, they, you know, when they're on the shelf, they have to, the spines have to line up perfectly. Yes. And, you know, I, I just have to hand it to our production team, Andy Hughes and Zach Lutz, mm-hmm. who made sure uh, that that would happen because even like when I'm doing the, what's called a mechanical at the printer, there can be, there still can be about an eighth of an inch play um, no matter how precise the mechanical is. And so, you know, we got mocked up dummies and it was really, it was really amazing. But again, like a lot of, even a lot of that was remote.
0: Yeah. And I have to say I own multiple editions of a couple of these books simply because the packaging is so spectacular. I mean, those rejackets jackets that you did on the paperbacks, I had to run out to our store at The Grove and pick up some extra copies so I had them on hand so I could do a little more research. And uh, I was very happy to own duplicates of books I already own. <laughs> and in some cases, I have a hardcover and a paperback, and now I have a couple of paperbacks. I do think, I mean, for me as a bookseller and also as a reader, I get so much joy out of a great jacket. And it's nice to hold a thing that works with the story, but is also just an objet in its own right. I mean, I actually recently bought a different copy of Middlemarch, which I'm behind in reading, because my original copy was ugly. And I couldn't do it because it was ugly. (laughs) And so I had to buy a different copy because it's not ugly. And if I'm going to read this, I need to hold something that's not ugly. So I know I'm not alone in that, but... What's the greatest pleasure for you when you're holding a book? And it may be a book that you've worked on. It may not be a book that you've worked on. I mean, Chip, you've also written books. Jenny, your first novel is coming out soon. Like, what's that moment for you?
1: As strange as this sounds, and I've mentioned this before, but um, the smell.
0: I totally get that. I've, I've held books that are not nicely printed. and
1: mm. The process on this project was so smooth that I was in disbelief. Like I, I was just like, you know, I'm gonna believe it when I'm when it's printed and I'm holding it. With a project with this much attention to it, um, you know, lots of factions can weigh in and say, I think we should do X, I think we should do X, and um, but nobody tinkered with the design. Um, it was and I was certainly prepared for that to happen, and I would totally understand if that happens. This is like a huge, huge milestone for, for Knopf and for Cormac. And, um, you know, people want it to be the best that, that it can be. So to, like, to hold it, it's like, yes, it really exists. And it looks like exactly what I envisioned, <laughs> which is not, you know, it's not always the case. And that's, right. that's, part, of the, that's part of the publishing process. And I understand when, when somebody says this needs to look bigger. This needs to look more, you know, frankly, more commercial. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I, un- I understand that, but um, that just didn't happen with this. And and that's a, it's a very fine line to walk as a designer. because I, of course, have all that in mind. Like, right. you, know, this has to look important and compelling, and you know, big in its own way. Um, but that doesn't mean it has to like scream at you.
2: I'm not a fancy wine drinker, but I understand that the people who drink a lot of wine. Can really tell the difference between you know a, a thirty dollar bottle of wine and a two hundred dollar bottle of wine. I can tell the difference between like a a two buck chuck and like you know something nice to restaurant. That's about it. But I do think in some ways my my work with um w- with such a, a a wonderful publisher has kind of spoiled me when it comes to looking at finished books because I notice things that I definitely didn't notice. 20 years ago. And, and when I look at, you know, a, a back or a spine that has gloss on it, I know that that costs more to do. I know that a lot of times people aren't allowed to put gloss anywhere, but on the front, you know, I'll look and see a die cut and think, wow, that's exciting. I'll go inside and look and say, oh, is it a three-piece case or a one-piece case? So in some ways, it's like, I feel like, you know, I'm I'm the wine taster here. And when I pick up a new book, I sort of want to inspect it all and say, wow, that was something. Wow. Something went into that. And so there is true pleasure in a, in a very beautifully made book and in sort of, you know, taking it apart, taking a look at the jacket, taking a look at the case, taking a look at the end papers and, and and seeing all the care that went into it. So that's my, that's my favorite part. The smell is Mm -hmm. good too. Can I
0: ask what Cormac thinks of the package?
2: He's happy. He, we were so just pleased that not only was he happy with the package, but he's been so happy with the publication. He's been happy with the reception. He celebrated with friends. Um, it feels really good.
1: We would not go to press with anything that that he would not like. So, you know, we we know he's happy by osmosis.
0: Osmosis is good.
1: Osmosis is good. I
0: mean, I would imagine that he wasn't. I mean, there was one moment though, Chip. You said with the road in previous interview that you guys tussled a little bit on that jacket, and that's the text only, and it has remained text only
2: um, yeah. in
0: every incarnation, which I found kind of fascinating.
1: Do you want to talk about that at all before we go? Uh, sure. I mean, the road was a very unique book for him. Yeah. Um, it's very personal. It's an allegory about him and his own son. Mm -hmm. I mean, I had worked on four books with him previous, Mm -hmm. and it was always about just getting the design right in-house and getting everybody in-house on board with it and then just sending it to him, and and he was like, this is great. The road was different. He had a lot to say about what he wanted and... It was just more of a, it was much more of a process. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, we arrived at what we arrived at. And and the final hardcover jacket is very, is very simple. Um, it is, I mean, it's glossy with spot matte. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the only conceptual thing I thought about it was that as soon as you pick it up, like your fingerprints get... Are all over it, and that's and then anybody who picks it up, um, and so that I know that sounds like really eggheady or whatever, but I liked that to be part of the design. Um, is that like humans were here at one point, but then it was so funny. It's very stark black, you know, with just a little bit of red on on the yep. on, on the title, and then Oprah picks it, and then the sticker goes on. And uh, just shattering the mood of of everything. But there's nobody in-house that would not want that sticker on that. That is correct. (laughs) Um, Yeah, no, that was, that was a real kick. And boy, reading that in manuscript. Oh, my God. That was, we were all just devastated by it. And I I had this, this in-house joke. That I said to my boss, Carol Carson, like, we should do a box set of this with Anne of Green Gables. Uh, just so that <laughs> you read the road and you want to kill yourself. And then, but quick, 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 start Anne of Green Gables. Just start it right now and it'll, it'll pick you right up. But uh, nobody in marketing thought that uh, that was a good idea. So,
0: you know, they might have been wrong. <laughs> I hesitate to say that, but that. I don't know. Now now I have to think, but I do love the box set of The Passenger and Stella Mars. I just think that package is, it just sings. It just sings. Jenny, is there anything you need to add? Because I got to let you guys go back to other stuff, but is there anything you want to add before we wrap up?
2: Oh, just that it is so much fun to be out here talking about these books and out here sharing these books and feeling how much this writer means to readers and it's just it's like such a vibrant community and readership so whole thing's just been fun
0: that's awesome to hear because honestly seeing the arc of what's happened for him just over the course of my career has been you don't often get those moments I mean it's great when you do but you know suddenly going from wait who's that guy to oh yeah absolutely great American novelist (laughs) and the rest of us are kind of like going yes yes thank you (laughs) I mean, he's a lot of fun to read, even when it's gruesome, and you know, guy can be gruesome, but there's always a lot
2: of swing on the page, and he's just and so this, great he to looks read. Funny, they're really yeah. funny, which is not even a main part of the pitch, but they're really funny.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's there are a lot of moments in The Passenger and Stella Mars where it's like, okay, 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 I will follow you down this rabbit hole because <laughs> you're Cormac. I'll go there. I'll see what happens. Jenny Jackson and Chip Kidd, thank you so much for joining us. And, you know, maybe someday Cormac will decide to do another interview, but eh, he's Cormac. He can do whatever he wants. (laughs) Thank you so much. Well, thank Thank you. you Thanks for having us on. I'm Miwa Messer. I'm the producer and host of Poured Over, and it is so good to see Cheryl Strayed on the other part of the screen this morning. Uh, It's been a minute. We were just trying to figure out when the last time we saw each other. Because Cheryl, Wilde was a Discover pick back in the day. You were a judge. You made some videos for us. It was great. It was wonderful. But you have had a lot going on in the eight or nine years since we've seen each other. It's amazing.
4: And Wilde won the Discover award that year. I was so thrilled and Such a
0: good year. Well, you also had Oprah. Oh, yeah.
4: There was Oprah. (laughs) And then the movie. So, yeah, no, I mean, the, the beautiful thing about writing a book, book called Wild is I got to, I got to use it as like, um, I got to use this a lot. It's been a wild decade. Let me just
0: tell you. That. Okay. Okay. So, I appreciate that.
4: <laughs> you know, not just a wild decade, but as what brings us here today is four months after Wild was published, my book, Tiny Beautiful Things, mm-hmm. published too. It was like that year, 2012, was quite the year.
0: It was a lot. And you sold almost a million copies or just over a million copies of Wild in less than a year or something like that. And then on top of it, Tiny Beautiful Things, which launched your podcasting and it became a stage play. And now it's being adapted for a streaming series on Hulu starring Catherine Hahn of WandaVision, which do we have an air date for that, by the way?
4: All I can say is
0: soon. Um,
4: okay. I'm So I'm one of the writers on the show mm-hmm. and also an executive producer on the show. Mm-hmm. The amazing Liz tigalar is the um, showrunner and creator. And, you know, we're working with an, an, a wonderful team of people. Hello, Sunshine, ABC yep. for Hulu. And what I can tell you is early 2023. That's what I've been told. I think okay. the final date has yet to be set. Great project. We shot it, Miwa, and we have, I've seen all eight Uh
0: episodes,
4: and I'm really excited for the world to
0: see it. Good, 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 good. And also starting a new year with a cool thing to watch. I mean, that's sort of the sign of our times is what are you watching? How do I find the thing to watch? And this is not to take away from the book, because we really are here to talk about the 10th anniversary edition of Tiny Beautiful Things, which 10 years, 10 years. (laughs) And it was so fun to go back and reread all of it and there's six new columns i do want to say the, the green jacket has new material added in but this you were writing dear sugar in a moment of kind of serious internet snark Wow. <laughs> yeah. and here you come out of the gate being very earnest and radical empathy i want to talk about radical empathy for a second because that was sort of the hallmark of the column when it was on the rumpus it's what i think of when i think of your work and there's a lot of that obviously in wild too in the way you tell that story but Radical empathy. You're not shaking a finger. You're not judging at the people, you know, judging the people who are writing letters to you. Radical empathy.
4: Yeah, you know it's interesting because when I first was asked to write the column, it was mm-hmm. it was really just Steve Allman, who who is my friend now, but at the time we were just acquaintances. We had met at a writers' conference, and he'd been writing it anonymously. And mm-hmm. he asked me, he he's like, listen, nobody reads it. I'm not interested in it, but. I think you'd be the perfect person for it. And he had read my first novel, Torch. Right. And he had read some of my essays and actually um, even taught some of my essays. And he, he said that, um, you know, I had been actually reading his column and I wrote him a fan letter. He said that was I, my fan. My letter was the only fan mail that he'd ever received. <laughs> it was So later, years later, you know, I said, well, you're not being literal, right? Like, that's not true. He's like, no, it actually is true. But when I sent him that fan note, which essentially said, "I think you're a really good writer. I wish you wrote this column more often," he said he had this realization: Cheryl is is sugar, (laughs) you know. So he asked me to take it over. Mm -hmm. Um, It paid nothing, and literally it paid nothing, Mm -hmm. and and nobody was really reading it, and, and and so there was every reason to say no. But I decided to say yes because it just sounded interesting to me, and. But as soon as I said, yes, like one of my fears, I had I had a number of fears about writing an advice column. Mm -hmm. Who am I to give people advice? I'd never taken a class in psychology or gone to therapy or any of that stuff. Um, But also, I was afraid specifically to write an advice column on the Internet because, as you say, it it was the age of snark and Mm -hmm. we were very much like, let's take people down and be mean and mock them and make fun of them and all that stuff. And I said to to Steve Almond and Isaac Fitzgerald and mm-hmm. Elliot, were the editor, you know, the editors of the Rumpus at the time, um, I'm sincere. I'm not a super funny person on the page. I'm going to try to be funny more, but my there's no way for me to really take this on um, and be snarky because I just that's not how I write. And and what's interesting to me about that is later that would become very much. The advice that I give other writers as I teach mm-hmm. writing. Because you know, I always grappled with this thing in my writing, which was which was that sincerity and earnestness and empathy at the center of of whatever I do, whether it be in, in a novel in Torch, in a memoir in Wild, in an advice column, that that's always present. And wh- the advice that I now give to writers is, tr- you know, trust. Trust that thing within you.
3: Mm-hmm.
4: If, if you are naturally writing, you have to naturally write from the place that is the deepest piece of you, the deepest part of you. You know, and for some people, that's to be hilariously snarky. Don't you know? Don't get me wrong. I love that kind of stuff, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but it's not my stuff. Right. And so, you know, I just trusted that and wrote the column from that place.
0: You know, one of the things I loved when I was researching for this show, in another interview, he said it wasn't the anonymity that gave me the freedom to write as Dear Sugar, it was the actual form. It was the intimacy between strangers, because you'd never met any of these people. You were just getting these letters and sort of just picking the ones that you thought were interesting.
4: Yeah. I mean, that was such a journey. First of all, when I said yes to writing the column anonymously, I always was very clear that it was, the anonymity was a temporary experiment, right? It wasn't going to be that I would never reveal my identity. So I wrote every column as if my name were at the top of it. And mm-hmm. so the anonymity didn't offer me anything in terms of, you know, protecting my privacy or allowing me to say things I would never say if I were writing it under my own name. But the, so it was really misunderstood that way. You know, right. I think we think of anonymity as, as it gives us license to be people maybe um, we aren't or the opposite, you know, expose our truest, deepest, darkest selves But for me, it was, I mean, anyone who's ever read any of my other writing, the essays I'd written before Sugar, Torch, and even Wild, which I'd written. So I just want to back up and say, like, Mm you know, when I was asked to write the Dear Sugar column by Steve Ullman, I had a few weeks before sent my, the first draft of Wild, the first full finished draft of Wild to my editor, Robin Desser at Knopf. And, and so I had, you know, gone the journey of writing that book. I still had to do the revisions and everything. But so I had very much already put myself on the page. Anyone who's read any of those things
3: Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. say
4: like, okay, you know, I, I always write with that kind of transparency or that I go to those emotional or vulnerable places. But it is true that that form, which is a very intimate form, the epistolary exchange. And Mm -hmm. I
3: never
4: forgot. And I still don't. I still write the column. I have a substack newsletter. And I write the column once a month and every time I write it, I think this is someone out there who mm-hmm. I don't, who has written a letter to me. And very often what's in that letter is a secret or a deep sorrow or a deep shame. It, very often it's something that they have never said to anyone before or are scared to even admit to themselves until they've written that letter. And so it, it is, you know, in I'm I'm publishing it, right? but at its deepest core, it is an exchange between me and that human out there who's written to me. And that is so intimate. And so that's in some ways, you know, it's that intimacy that really pushed, I think, Mm -hmm. columns and tiny, beautiful things to that deeper level.
0: And there's so many people too. I mean, you talk about shame and secrets and, you know, the moment that people have and where they write to you kind of thing, but there's so much loneliness in the world oh. i mean we're so connected in so many weird ways and yet there is so much loneliness out there and it's a really profound experience sitting down with tiny beautiful things and you know i read it when it first came out and then i just reread it and it's like wow some of this is still really part of the world and it's 10 years later like have we learned nothing cheryl have we learned nothing where are we going What's well going that was interesting
4: to me too when i got the idea. Um, to bring out this, this 10th anniversary edition. Like, first of all, I knew the show was coming out soon. And and I always, you know, because I have gone on to continue to write the column on my Substack newsletter, I had generated so many more columns. There are six new columns in the book, but I could have put in a whole lot more. But my first thing when I proposed this is I read the book and I hadn't read the book for a decade. Believe it or not, authors don't sit around reading their own books. So I was like well maybe it's dated, you know. Right, right. And I read the book and that's what was so unbelievably fascinating to me um is that there was really nothing that was dated and it was right. why it's not because like it's not because of me and like I could see into the future and you know be current it was the struggles that we have are, are of course core to the human experience mm-hmm. and that doesn't really change you know the This is the thing. One of the things I've found the most beautiful and profound and powerful about literature
3: Mm -hmm.
4: is that you can pick up a book. You can walk into Barnes and Noble and pick up a book that somebody wrote two hundred years ago, and you can see yourself in it. Mm -hmm. And um, those truths about what it feels like to love somebody, or to lose somebody, or to be afraid, or to feel alone, or to not know what direction you can take should take or to be afraid like you know to, to, to fear uh you know your your future or be tortured over your past all of those things um that you and i and everyone listening to this goes through people two and three and four and a thousand years ago went through them too. Right. Do you hear back from people after oh, their yeah. letters have run? All the time. I was thinking about that um recently uh, you know trying to figure out like well what percentage I would guess that about ha- half or maybe a little more of the people mm-hmm. who, who are in tiny beautiful things their letters are in tiny beautiful things have you know had followed up with me and told me what happened wow pretty quickly after the letter was published or sometimes years later or sometimes both
0: wow okay yeah. do those responses surprise you
4: i don't know that they surprised me but they hmm. feel like gifts you know they're they're beautiful yeah i mean here's what surprises me was the 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 feeling of the thing that goes beyond the letter writer so so yes have i heard specifically from that person who wrote me the letter yes but i've also in each case heard from hundreds and in some cases thousands of people who have said that letter that particular right. letter changed my life because it it compelled me to make this decision or to feel this way or to rethink something in a profound Mm -hmm. way that changed the course of my life. And that's, that's, I guess what surprises me. I don't know why it does, because of course, I believe entirely in the power of literature, Um, but to be somebody who is part of that, who, who who compelled in others what so many writers have compelled in me Mm -hmm. feels always like a, a, a glorious surprise.
0: Did writing dear sugar change you or teach you something that you really didn't know before you sat down to do? Yes.
4: It? Yes. I mean, writing it's it's interesting because dear sugar feels more direct like
3: mm-hmm. where it's mm-hmm. like
4: it's more direct where I'm like, "Okay, how do I if I'm going to encourage somebody else to be brave or be the best version of themselves or you know, any of those things that I encourage people to do like it compels me to think about my own life
3: Mm and think, mm
4: -hmm. well, how, how can I do that? Like, you know, Mm -hmm. um, if I'm pointing out to somebody that, that they need to like have better boundaries, it it does compel me to think, well, what are my boundaries? Like, am I a hypocrite? If I'm telling somebody they have to be brave enough to speak honestly to a friend about something that's upset them? Well, what if I'm, what if I haven't done that? So, so yes, it's made me a better person in that way and changed me in that way. But what I was going to say is, To me, I think writing always changes me. You know, everything I've ever written compels me to to excavate my life, to think deeply about my experience and also the human experience. And so I always feel transformed by it.
0: One of the things I really appreciate, too, about Tiny Beautiful Things is the fact that you're not judging the letter writer per se. You're actually just giving them space and really listening to what they're saying and trying to connect with what they are actually saying as opposed to what you think they're saying. Because it's really easy, I think, for all of us to be able to say, well, I think this is what you said. And sometimes we're right. And sometimes we are spectacularly wrong. Yeah. But I'm also guessing that takes practice learning how to read in a way or listen in a way. That presents the thing in front of you. Yeah.
4: Yeah, I guess so. I mean, it's, I'm always fascinated by how judgmental people are. You know, I'm always fascinated by how people really want to leap
3: to, mm-hmm.
4: you know, like when they hear, and maybe it's the, the advice column form, you know, as it, it existed essentially before I began writing the Dear shirt. Right. Column. It would be like, okay, you know, this advice giver is like, the person who knows, you know, and, Mm -hmm. and they're going to tell me the right thing. And I always knew as sugar that I was actually just going to try to tell, to, to uncover the truest thing, you know, maybe it was, was, you know, all of my apprenticeship as a writer, all the, all of the ways that I had to figure out how to make a character on the page, whether that character be me, you know? in Wild or in Torch, the the fictional characters I invented and all the, you know, all the reading Mm -hmm. of about complicated humans, um, you know, inevitably what you have to do is like you have to not be judgmental about those characters you're creating. You have to make them human. And so when you do that, you, you can enfold and embrace their negative qualities and their positive qualities and the mistakes they made and the things they did right. And so I really, you know, it just, that just became second nature to me in, in my life. And certainly as an advice columnist, you know, to, to say like, I'm just going to listen very carefully to what you're saying to me. I'm going to root for you Mm -hmm. and I'm going to believe in your inherent goodness. And I'm going to believe in your capacity to change. Mm -hmm. And, you know, those are all things that are, that are not about like are you a good person or a bad person? Did you do the right thing or the wrong thing? Um, And judgment, you know, I like, I I do think that sometimes being judgmental of people makes us feel safe. Because
0: completely, completely. you know, we
4: get to be like, well, I'm not that person. Mm -hmm. I'm not that stupid or, you know, dumb or whatever, fill in the blank. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the minute you stop judging people and do essentially what I do as sugar is to say, oh, I'm going to sit down next to you and mm-hmm. really listen to your story. You know, you you get included in that. You know, mm-hmm. and I, and this is what I, you know, in my column, I use storytelling. I I often use stories from my own life, and I purposely try. I'm not I'm not doing that because I want to be like, wow, listen to me. Let me tell you this. Right. I'm doing that because one, I believe that story is a a really powerful way for us to see things we we can't necessarily see. in in other, when we're talking in other ways, but also because I want to say like, I am here with you. Like I, I understand the struggle or the confusion
0: you're in. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I mentioned at the top of the show that Tiny Beautiful Things had been adapted into a stage play. I know it premiered in New York at the Public. It also hit the Pasadena Playhouse and then Seattle, Portland, and who am I missing? Because I think it played in quite a number of places. It did the entire country, right? Okay. Yeah, I, I think it was in 2019.
4: Yeah, but basically the pandemic messed us up quite a bit. But Got it. Um, in 2019, it was in the top ten most produced plays in the nation. Wow. Okay. Okay. So it was a lot of places. Okay. I mean, more than you and I can can list. Um, it's been also like in Sri Lanka. It's been in it's been in Australia. It's been around the world. So 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 Neil Dallas mm-hmm. um, adapted it. Yep. starred Started in the original run of it at the Public. Directed by Thomas Kale. Marshall Heyman was uh really uh the one who had discovered the book uh, through Jody Cantor, actually. <laughs> the, the writer Jody Cantor, new Marshall said, You have to read tiny, beautiful things, he did. He gave it to Tommy Kale. you have to read tiny, beautiful things, he did. Tommy Kale gave it to Nia and said, Read this. I think we should make a play. And they did. Mm-hmm. And I was I was part of it. Um you know, from the beginning, we had these wonderful discussions, and we would sit around a table. I would fly to New York and spend a week with Tommy and Nia and Marshall. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we would just talk about how this might be made into a play. And Nia just did a beautiful, beautiful job of of adapting it. and also, wow you know, playing that role as sugar. And she, mm-hmm. she was amazing.
0: And audiences were really connecting with her. There were a lot of nights where there were open tears and sobbing sounds, it sounds like. At yeah. least in New York. I mean, I don't know if it happened elsewhere, but if it happened oh, yeah. in New York, it, it, it happened everywhere.
4: elsewhere. <laughs> Every, it, everywhere. That's the thing I always hear. I mean, whether it, it you know, some little town in Florida or, you know, Michigan or Massachusetts or whatever, Everyone says, and, and of course, I've seen it in several places, mm-hmm. Chicago. I mean, like everywhere I've seen it, people cried. Yeah. And in some cases, people wept and wailed. And that, I mean, that was what was so absolutely amazing to me about the experience of the play was that feeling, I think, that you can only get in in theater um, where you're having a communal experience, right. right? You know, you're sitting in a room with people who are being taken through a lot of different emotions. And, you know, some of those letters are hard to hear. Some of the Mm -hmm. answers I gave and the stories I tell are brutal.
3: Mm -hmm. And even
4: I, the author of those sentences, had to brace myself. Like when we get to the point where we're reading, you know, they're doing like the baby bird or the Mm obliterate place, you know, I would squirm in my chair because they're paying for me too.
0: But again, I think that really speaks to the connection that people find in, let's call it the sugar universe, right? I mean, you had four years of the podcast through BUR and the New York Times. You did sugar calling early in the pandemic in 20. You were talking to writers like George Saunders and Joy Harjo and Amy Tan and just having these really genuine conversations about art and life and connection and loneliness and all of these things. And the idea that 10 years later, we're still sort of wired into this world in different iterations is pretty cool. Not everyone gets to do that.
4: Oh, it's I mean, it's ridiculous. Honestly, I go back in time in my mind and I Mm -hmm. think about, you know, how did this started with such a (laughs) on such essentially like really tenuous ground. I was like, I guess so. I guess I'll do this thing for which uh, I'll be paid nothing and Mm -hmm. maybe nobody will read it. Because you know that was the other thing is when I started writing the the column I didn't have the fame I do now right. like a name right. recognition I do now but I was a, a published author I'd published my first novel I was in, you know, I was known in the literary orbit that where we know most writers the little bit of sort of platform I had which I did have I couldn't post on Facebook or tweet and say hey guys I wrote this this here's this week's Dear sugar column like right, I, right. I just had to be like okay, I hope because it's anonymous, I hope somebody picks it up and reads it and passes it along. Um, so it, it started off in a very humble way with extremely low expectations is mm-hmm. what I'm trying to say. And to now what I can say is it has without question been one of the most important transformative experiences of my writing career and also of my life. And And I also, you know, sort of became, or, or like, or maybe I always was that like, I'm both Cheryl and sugar, you know, and I had absolutely no idea that I would ever um, write in this form. I didn't know anything about this form. And so, yeah, I, I love, the, I love the way that this Dear Sugar experience has been for me, just like an absolute journey of the unexpected. And in so many ways, like all the, all the turns and, 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 and curves that came along with it. Like, I was always trusting the advice that I give to other people is you know, trust your gut, which is why, mm-hmm. I yes, and see where things you know you know follow the path when it reveals itself, right. And here I am, um talking to you,
0: and now here we go. It's going to be a Hulu show, right? So is trust yourself the best piece of advice you've ever given yourself? I mean, you've given plenty of us good advice, but for you as Cheryl,
4: well, you know, I think that it is a really essential. Essential piece of advice, and it's a very essential truth by which, um, like almost always, if we can live by it, um, we will we will live right. And it seems so simple, and like the simplest things, it's actually the most complex because, of course, many, many, many of us, maybe all of us, um, you know, were raised in families, religions, communities, cultures. That actually taught us not to trust ourselves, you know, to say like, well, no, you should do this thing. You know, whether it be, uh, you know, my passion is to paint and but everyone around you says, well, artists can't make a living or your passion is to write. Oh, writers can't make a living. So so you don't trust yourself. And so you become. You know, you you follow a career path that takes you in a different direction, and you always have that nine sense inside that you didn't do what you really wanted to do with your life. Or um, in a relationship where you're, you know, you're 33 or 34 and you're with somebody who you love, but like you don't really think they're the one, but you marry them anyway, even though you have that ache inside of you. Like um, I could list example after example, and um, almost always that little ache inside of you becomes the agony of your life.
3: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And
4: you're gonna have to reckon with it someday. And so, you know, if we can get as close as possible to following that voice within, within us as as quickly as possible, <laughs> um, we're gonna hurt ourselves a lot less. And we're gonna also hurt others a lot less.
0: Yeah, no, I get that.
4: What about you, have you what's something about which you either have or have not trusted yourself?
0: Oh, you know, or- actually I'm pretty good at listening to myself and the results are not always great. At no? first, <laughs> at first I tend to lead with my chin. I do tend to lead with my chin and and occasionally I have gotten myself into situations, but in the grand scheme of things, not planning has worked out very well for me. I'm not, I'm not a five-year plan person. I just say yes a lot. And I just say, okay, okay I have nothing to lose. I may as well. I occasionally... It, you know it gets complicated <laughs> <laughs> but i would rather take the risk i mean here's the thing i would rather do the thing than look back and say oh why didn't i just try i mean yeah. I, I don't yeah good you, idea. Can't, you can't control other people's responses in any way shape or form so you may as well just try the thing and see what happens and that's true it tends to work out for me much more than i would have expected <laughs> that's really That's great. Because you trusted yourself. Pretty much. Pretty much. And, you know, I do have a kitchen cabinet that I turn to and occasionally will be like, all right, (laughs) this may be a really bad idea. (laughs) But, you know, having a community that's willing to say to you, oh, yeah, sweetie, don't. (laughs) Like, what are you thinking? Yeah.
4: Is hugely helpful.
0: It is hugely helpful. Every
4: thought you have is is right. That's right.
0: (laughs) Oh, oh, no. I have plenty. Yeah, I have plenty of things that we just put in a box and, you know, don't, yeah, those, those just stay in a box, but I would rather at least try than not. And also I'm not great at sitting still. I can sit still while I'm doing an interview, but in general, I'm not great at sitting still. <laughs> so I would rather be moving around and doing things yeah. than, than figuring out sort of intellectually what, the approach should be instead of just being like, "Oh I'll give it a whirl, i'll see what happens."
4: Well, and part of maybe trusting yourself in that way is like trust is, is trusting that even if you made a mistake, if it goes wrong, if it wasn't the thing, that you'll be able to find your way out of it.
0: Yeah, and I tend not to repeat mistakes. I find new and exciting mistakes to make, but I don't repeat the same thing, so there is some comfort in like right. well, I'm going to find a new crazy thing to do and see what happens, but what else are you, you've been working on the show, you were involved in the play, you were podcast. all of these things, but what else, is there a new book maybe coming? Maybe There is a new book coming. Okay. Huzzah.
4: I have been, oh, thank you. I have been, you know, writing nonstop and working nonstop um, over these last 10 years. Um, I n- not only have and I've been in, I was involved in the making of the movie and in the making of the play that like I've been had my hands as you say podcasts mm-hmm. like all of these different things but I've also been um writing some screenplays I was written I was hired to write a screenplay about Janis Chaplin which I did wow okay Really fun and interesting and that's you know now in the that that place in Hollywood where where scripts go where they're like you know let's see what happens to it next um and of course, I have also been working on my next book and actually my next two books. Mm-hmm,
3: one of the mm-hmm. things
4: that has happened is I I started working on a memoir and I started working on a novel. You know, I have really a love <laughs> for both fiction and memoir. Mm-hmm. And I was kind of like, you know, those those pictures of those of those rodeo riders, those women in the old fashioned rodeos where they're they've got one foot on on two horses and they're riding along. <laughs> I felt like that for a while. And now I have said, okay. I'm going to write the memoir first and then the novel. So I've set the novel aside. That will come, Mm -hmm. that'll be my, you know, I'm going to finish this memoir and then do the novel. And yeah, what's happened to me now is I write the Dear Sugar column once a month on Substack. So I'm really trying now to say no to everything but the book. Um, Because what happened is, you know, over this last decade, I did what you just said, you know, said yes to everything. I I had an ac- accidental career as a public speaker.
3: Right.
4: I have taught a lot of workshops. Like I've done like so many different things and I tend to be somebody who's really excited about that. I love to mm-hmm. learn new things, but I do now very much uh feel really committed to bringing it back here and 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 answering that deepest call, which is which is to write books. Mm-hmm. So um that's what I'm doing. Oh,
0: that is so, so exciting. Thank you. Before I let you go, though, because, I mean, you do have some writing to do, what do you really hope readers who are new to Dear Sugar will take away from the experience?
4: Oh, wow. I, that's such a big, beautiful question that it just, my first reaction is I almost get teared up thinking about it. You mm-hmm. know, I hope, I hope that readers, new readers to Tiny Beautiful Things will have that that beautiful profound grand experience that that I think we can only really have um, with books where you you know enter into the, essentially the, the sort of magic portal of the book and you find profound truth and beauty about yourself and also profound truth and beauty about the world around us about the other people who live on this planet with us and I li- I I really do think that the greatest deepest truest Builders of empathy are the arts, you know, because they do remind us that we are connected to each other, and we're connected to each other in in triumph and beauty and 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 love and all the glorious things. and we're connected to each other in sorrow and suffering and loss and darkness, all the hard things. And I love, you know, I, I think that that's my mission as a writer. The thing I've always aspired to do is to make people feel more human to make people feel less alone. And so I hope that they have that when they read Tiny Beautiful Things.
0: And that seems like the perfect place to wrap because I think that's exactly what they're going to find when they pick up Tiny Beautiful Things. Even if you're coming back to it or if you're picking it up for the first time, the 10th anniversary edition of Tiny Beautiful Things is out now. The series comes to Hulu sometime in 2023. So you can start the new year hopefully with that. But Cheryl, it was really great to see you and I cannot wait for the next book, whatever it may be. I can sit, I can be patient, but I'm very, very excited. Thank you so much again.
4: Oh, thank you. It was such a pleasure to talk to you, Mila. I'm wishing you all the best.
1: Thank you for listening. Poured Over is a Barnes & Noble production. To help other readers find us, please rate and review the show wherever you listen to podcasts.